All right. Good morning, everyone. So we want to welcome you to the chapel this morning. Uh, we're just so grateful that you can be with us. If you have been uh, watching the progress on the front of the, front of the building, if you like the color, I picked it. No, really. It, what's what's uh, a couple of people have asked. What's on there is just the waterproofing coat, and then the color follows. And everybody had a sense of relief, right? So grateful for good progress with that. Looking forward to seeing that get completed. And I uh, want to thank you all for coming this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we just want to thank you and welcome you. If you would like to connect with us in a more serious way, you can go to the connection desk out front, uh, fill out a card. If you have any requests, desire for contact from the pastoral team, just uh, indicate that on the card and we will be glad to get in touch with you in the very near future. We had a large blessing on, I believe Friday was the 13th. Is that correct? Okay. So on Friday the 13th, born to the Cruz family, was a little Caleb August. And I have the details on my phone and I forgot to bring it up. So uh, ladies, check with me after the service. I have everything you desire to know about the birth of a little child. All right. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Let's uh, just pray and uh, ask for God's blessing on our time of worship and on his word together this morning. Father, it is a joy for us to come. Uh, it is a humbling honor for us uh, to bring to you an offering of praise. And Father, we tend to know the words to the songs. I pray that we will not sing them from memory but from our hearts. Uh, God, that we would engage with you as we sing. As individuals pray through the service, God, I pray that we will not be spectators, but participants in all that happens today. Even in the, 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 the preaching and hearing of your word, God, let us uh, be open to the things that you have to say to us. Let us engage with you today. Let us wrestle with you today with truths that challenge our thinking, that challenge how we live, that challenge how we act, even nationally. Uh, Father, we need your help desperately. We need your truth to permeate our hearts, to inform our minds, so that we can strive to be biblical Christians who live to honor and glorify God. So, Lord, be our first allegiance. And be exalted, I pray, right now through our season of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's worship him together. Throw it 
centuries, the church viewed mercy as crying for mercy, not necessarily thinking of avoidance of hell, but of avoiding the misery that so often accompanies living in a sin-filled world, whether it's the misery of an ongoing sickness, the misery of a broken marriage that's, that's just tears at your heart no matter what, the misery sometimes that accompanies life. And so the church for centuries cried out for mercy, not necessarily in avoidance of hell, but of saying, Lord, neutralize the misery. Have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. Do you need mercy this morning? Do your children need mercy? 
His mercy is more. It's stronger than darkness. We say that because there is a man of sorrows who entered into our grief and entered into our pain and lived a life of brokenness, rejection, of sorrow and pain for our behalf.
came through on my Facebook um, feed last night from Timothy Keller. He's a pastor in, in New York. The cross, by nature, is offensive. But we can only grasp its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. We have to understand that the cross is ugly. It's terrible. It's and our sin is what caused it. And yet the sweetness of it, the tenderness of our Savior there, is what, is what sets us free. It's the only thing that, that gives us hope.
up there again and we're going to sing that last verse a cappella if you know the parts sing it let's let it ring to the heavens and lord haste the day All right, let's uh, let the children be dismissed for uh, their junior church time. Just go out to the back, and there's someone to meet you back there. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. And also just want to make you aware of a young adult gathering at our house tonight. Uh, starts at around 6 o'clock. If you're college age to... 30-something, you're welcome to come and enjoy the time together. Uh, just have a, a little picnic time out back and just hope that uh, if you know someone that's in that age group that's looking for a place to fellowship, uh, you can feel free to invite them. All right, Malachi 3, <clears throat> verse 7 is where we're going to begin in the text. Um, all right, let, let's read the text right now just to open, okay? 
verse 7, Malachi 3. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how will we return? God says, will a man rob God? That you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You were cursed with a curse, for you were robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And by this, put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. And pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight. Says the Lord of hosts. So here's my fear this morning. I feel like I'm going to upset some people, okay? Uh, And I'm okay with that. Uh, I hope you don't turn off because you don't like what's being said. I hope instead you ask the question that we should always ask, and that is, is that what God says? Because nothing else at the end of the day matters. I fear that many people that claim to be followers of Christ in some areas are not followers of his word. And this text pushes some of those kinds of buttons. So apologize uh, is not what I want to say I'm doing because I'm not. I will not um, apologize for God's truth. I would ask you to sift what I say. And when you find my opinion, you are free to disregard it. You can chuck it out and you say, this is that stupid Pastor Tim again. Okay, you can, you can do that. I will not be offended. Okay, I've been at this too long to be offended by something like that. Otherwise, I would have caved a long time ago. We live in an interesting world. I have a pattern that I use for evaluating presidential candidates. Okay, I've done this for decades. I look up what the percentage of their charitable giving is. And it has been an astonishing exercise. I will tell you, it's never been an encouraging number. For some reason, you can't get some data on certain people that have held the office. I did a deeper dive, not for political reasons, but I, I live with assumptions. My mind tends to hit a topic and run on it. And the area of giving is something that my mind tended to run on for the last couple weeks because I knew that the topic would be on my plate to deal with today. So I looked up IRS statistics on giving. And the, uh, the survey and the article that I read was by the Philanthropy Roundtable. Tons of charts and statistics that deal with the idea of charitable contributions across the nation. 81% of giving in the U.S. is done by individuals, and the vast majority of it 
comes for people of average income. I'm going to be honest with you. I was not surprised by that statistic. The thing that I did find interesting in an age that tends to want to constantly denigrate the country that I live in, I am an American. I, I am fully conscious. I have read a lot in the last year. I am fully conscious uh, of the history of our country at many levels and am not proud of the history of America in the sense of to every detail. So I don't, I don't hold absolute blind uh, patriotic aspirations and opinions. Okay, they, I have strived to be informed. This is a statistic that struck me. Americans give at a level seven times more than Europeans. Seven times. So can I, can I be transparent? I am sick of people not being honest with the facts about the flawed country that I live in. I was stunned. Not something you're going to hear at a liberal college. Not something you're going to hear in the local public school. Because you would probably get in trouble for saying that if you're a teacher, even though it is a fact. Canada gives one half on average to charity of what the United States does per capita. The most generous Americans are not those in high-income, urban, liberal, wealthy states like California and Massachusetts. Rather, people living in states that are more rural, conservative, religious, and moderate in their income are, in fact, the most generous givers in our country. I'm going to tell you something. I was not surprised by that either. The least giving states are New England and then the central states of the East Coast, namely my state, Pennsylvania and New York. IRS statistics show that the more liberal states are, the less they give, which means there's something wrong out there in the main dialogue of the country I live in. There is something that's not being said that should be said. This isn't the place for that. I'm just giving you statistics to lead me up to the topic that we're addressing today. The variations between states in the Bible Belt or the breadbasket of America or what is often referred to as flyover country in a derogatory fashion are twice as generous as the residents of New England, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York, even though their income level is lower. The biggest givers to charity are concentrated in the Bible Belt states. On the other hand, scant giving from households are concentrated in the wealthy liberal states like New England and California. So what you believe, how you live, affects your wallet. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, your heart is. The thing that I'm tired about is political candidates talking about generosity when they fail to practice it in their personal lives. That is a hypocrisy that Jesus himself called out, so it's open territory for the church to say, we need to call a spade a spade at times. 
And the level of hypocrisy in this area is virtually unbearable if you read in Father. Okay, I'm back. Okay, I'll try that. I, that's scary. Let me. Try, I will go with this for a while. I have ADD, so if I'm holding that thing, I'm thinking about it. I can't. I probably shouldn't do that. Okay, why preach on this topic now? Okay, why why touch on the topic of money? It's not for political reasons. Political reasons are a backdrop that is undeniable and unavoidable. It's where we live, so we need to be informed and honest with what we know. Number one, none of us as a pastoral team likes preaching on money. I think I was selected to give this sermon when I wasn't there, okay? (laughs) I'll just say, but if you read Jesus, and especially Luke, you will know that, as my title says, money matters. The gospel of Luke is replete with teachings from Jesus about how we deal with this issue of what is in our wallet, what's in our bank accounts, what we live in. Okay, there's a whole lot of data that I am thankful for because it helps me to understand, adjust, and navigate the world that I live in that is frequently involving the issue of monetary possessions. It's, it's the way that it is. So I don't, I'm not afraid to talk about the topic. We're not addressing the topic because as a church, we're experiencing a shortfall because we are not. God has blessed us abundantly. And I'm thankful for it. The pastors don't want larger paychecks and bigger airplanes. Okay, as if you're, that would be funnier to you if you were up to date on what's happening out there in the American church. Actually, it would be sad to you. People claiming that because of their position in the church, they have the right to fly first class or in a private jet at the expense of the poor. Okay, just sometimes you just got to get it off your chest. We as a church operate with transparency we give out a statement of what happens to all our finances you know exactly what everybody makes because we want you to we don't want you to ever have to wonder are they being honest with the gifts that i give try to find the salary levels of the pastors that many people in the american church fall at the throne of who will not be transparent about what they make because it would be fundamentally embarrassing Okay, so I warn you, as a warning from your pastor, you know what we do here. There are people that take care of the finances. None of the pastoral team or elders touch finances. Okay, and there's a reason for that. So we're not addressing it because there there is a struggle in this area. God has blessed us. We're touching on this topic because it's the next topic that comes up in the text that we're moving through. It's one of the benefits of preaching through the Bible. You can't cherry pick and say, oh, I like that topic, or I feel like talking about that, or this. You, you're working through God's Word, given by His Spirit, inspired, truthful, life-changing. And so we, we, we dive into this, and all of a sudden, that's the topic in front of me today. So guess what I have to do? If I'm going to honor God, i got to preach His Word, all of it, without being selective and avoiding certain difficult topics. The other thing I'm going to say is if we as a church, if we as proclaimers of God's truth, at some level don't sound disruptive, uncomfortable. My guess is we're probably not preaching God's truth. 
if it never challenges me and calls me, if I never sense as I'm listening to God's word or preaching God's word, the presence of the spirit of God saying, go in this direction, that's for you. If that never happens, then we as pastors are failing to do our job. Okay, so it's, it's important that we, I mean, this text says, verse 8, you have robbed God. I, I'd say that's a little disruptive. You're cheating God. You're stealing from God. That, that's not nice, right? Malachi is not a nice guy, right? Most of you aren't saying after listening to these sermons, I wish Malachi was my friend. Right? You would say, I, I don't, he's the kind of guy I'd like to stay away from. What are the biblical uses of money? And this is just broad background. What are the, why did God give us money? Number one is this. And, and I don't say any of these to prioritize or stratify them. Okay? I'm just saying, why did God give us financial resources? What is their function in our lives? And I just thought through... There may be more, there probably are more, but I'll, I'll probably argue with you and say they're under the umbrella of number three, okay? Because I'm proud, all right? All right, number one is this, the care for your family. Paul says to Timothy, if someone doesn't care for their family to the best of their God-given ability, it doesn't mean you won't struggle, but if they won't care for their family, they're worse than an infidel. You know, now you don't like Paul either. Secondly, to support God's work, his church. That's clear throughout the Bible. Support of temple, support of local church, those that teach the word, double honor, those sorts of things. Okay? So there's that purpose so that what we do here is sponsored by this church and the givers in this church alone. Okay? That, that's all that there is in this context. Thirdly, to help brothers and sisters in the household of faith. Galatians 6. Care for the needs of those in the household of faith, or, or care for the needs of all, especially those of the household of faith. So there is, at that place, a stratification. My first obligation is to my family, to my spiritual family, then to the world. And do not miss the last part. Okay, we do very good taking care of us and ours, me and mine. But the question ought to be, what about them and theirs? I have a natural inclination to care for my own family. I have to challenge myself to be thoughtful about those around me. Someone was rec- I was in a discussion with someone about the obligation of the church to do good. I was shocked by the fact that we needed to debate that thought. But because of the polarization and disruption that is present, even that point is starting to be lost. And to me, that's sad. So let's move into this text. Oh, I'm sorry. The reason I brought that up, Laura, that was my ADD moment for the day right there. Okay? Um, the reason I bring up that discussion about which one is most important, that was the, at the end of the discussion, he said, well, well, Pastor Tim, what, which do you think is the most important? And I said, well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't talk that way. If you've done this, this, and this, then do this. It's just, we're called to obey God. Without excuse, without stratifying, without prioritizing. The only thing I can say is this. The Bible says, love God, right? Jesus was there. What's the greatest commandment? He kind of gave him a non-answer. He, 
It was obey the Ten Commandments. Obey everything that God says. Love God, first four. Love your neighbor as yourself, second six. Without stratifying. Instead, what he said was, in that is a summary of everything that God wants from us. And it's also true about our relationship to monetary possessions. It's all covered in that. So let's work our way through this text, and then we'll arrive at three applications at the end. Okay, first of all, the, dress, the, the text addresses a general pattern in verse 1. It says, from the days of your fathers. Okay, so God is talking about Israel from a historical perspective. Looking back over the period of their existence, what has this nation been like? Okay, you'll find some help in remembering that I didn't choose you because you were lovely. In fact, God says, I chose you because I knew you were a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. Unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Placed on a nation that God says is difficult. And their history proves out God's analysis of the nation. That as they function and as they work, they have a tendency to turn aside, verse 7 says, from my statues and not keep them. But because God is loving and not like us, he doesn't hold a grudge. Because he is merciful, just, and gracious. Equally. He says to them, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This text starts with a in-your-face analysis and an invitation that gives hope. That my life, my stubborn heart can change and God is calling me in that direction verses 8 and 9 follow that or I'm sorry they say but you say how shall we return I mean and the 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 assumption is like God what's wrong in our relationship what and it becomes clear in the context what the real issue is verse 8 God says to them To heighten the sense of analysis. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Meaning can someone rob God. And live without the consequences of that failure. Okay. Can you. Can you take from God without him knowing. I grew up in a hardware store. Okay. Family business. That I was blessed to live in. Okay. Okay. We, people are very clever when it comes to theft. I took classes on how to steal so that we could defend ourselves in the store against thieves. Okay? People got over on us. I remember the day a guy said to me, hey, I bought this lawnmower. Can you help me load it in the trunk? Sure. Customer first. I get back at seven. Okay, told my brother, I said, I'm not like you. I'm not driven by profit. (laughs) Oh, man, can you rob God? You can rob Tim Hoff. I took classes on how to keep you from doing it. And I could go story after story of the creativity of people when it comes to theft. God says, you were robbing me. That's a serious charge. 
you are cheating me is the way the New Living Translation says it, which that's a word you don't want applied to yourself to describe yourself. You're a cheat. You're a thief. But God says it to the apple of his eye, to his loved possession, Israel, because he won't let his children drift in sin without confrontation. So it is in this text. He goes deeper. You are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? And he simply says this, in tithes and contributions, which was in the Old Testament, just the, the, the standard way that Israel as a nation gave to God. It came out in two ways. It came out into something that was called the first fruits. When the harvest came in, 10% of it went to God and was given with an implied statement. God... You gave it to me, so I'm giving you 10% of it as an acknowledgement of that fact. And secondly, it is an acknowledgement that the the day I die, my wealth takes wings and flies away, meaning it becomes worthless. It will not help me in any way whatsoever. So that's the first words. The second principle, and it's clearly the one here, in tithes and contributions, tithing literally means one in ten. Okay, it is a standard for giving that is applied throughout the Old Testament. It's 10%. Okay, and you can, you can read, gosh, so many passages throughout the Old Testament that talk about that principle. The money that was given was used for two purposes. Care of the temple, the place where God was acknowledged, worshipped, and honored. And the care of the poor. Okay, those were the two reasons why money was collected at the temple. Okay? Tithing is not directly taught in the New Testament. Okay? So I want to be clear. However, tithing is practiced by the people of God before the formation of Israel in the book of Exodus. So I can go back to the book of Genesis and I can find Melchizedek, or I'm sorry, I can find Abraham giving a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek as a priest of the Most High God. Okay, so, so there is precedent prior to law about tithing that indicates at some level that there was this practice of proportionate giving in, in the Old Testament that moves into the New Testament church without a mandate, okay? Guidance is present in the book of 1 Corinthians on the first day of the week. As God prospers you, lay up in store for the offering that is to be taken on Sunday for the, for the provision of leadership and for the care of the poor. Okay, both, both of those things come into purview as you read through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Okay, so God's indictment of them is that you're stealing out of your tithes and contributions, meaning you're making it look like you're giving 10% when you're really not. Okay, so that's, that's the indictment. They had a mandate from God to give generously, and what God essentially says to them is withholding from God is theft. Okay, so... Let that settle in, okay, that uncomfortable thought. Verse 9 gives us the sobering consequence. 
It says, as a result, you are cursed with the curse. Now, that, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? I don't know. Some of the translations have it differently. But all, all that it does is simply it adds emphasis. It's an emphatic statement that there is a serious consequence to belligerently or in a rebellious fashion know what God wants and not do it. Okay? And that's what's called out in this text. You're stealing by withholding what belongs to God. That is the, that's the simple definition of theft. When I loaded that lawnmower in that guy's trunk, it didn't become a gift. Okay? He had stolen from us. And my brother was outraged and I was kind of flustered. My pride was devastated that I would do something like that. Okay? But we were all felt the need for justice. Why? Because him taking that was wrong. That's a, that's a fair response. God says to Israel, by withholding what is rightfully mine, you have distanced yourself from God. You have lost his protection. Now, I want you to look at verse 11 real quick, okay? Because it'll, it'll help you to realize what Israel lost and what God promises to them should they return. Okay, notice what it says. God says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. That is locust, insects, all the things that eat crops. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so by stealing from God, Israel had put them in a, themselves in a place where they were outside of God's blessing and at the mercy of whatever happened. And in that sense, God says to them, my hand's off. You're on your own. Okay, which is one of the most severe judgments that God in his word can give us. It becomes clear in this text. If you return to me, I will run to you. It's the story of the prodigal father. Right? It's implied throughout the rebuke is an implied hope. Turn, come back, and I'll help you and I'll heal you. Why is it so serious? Why why cursed with the curse? Why doubling down? Why? And it's interesting, too, that he says the whole nation of you. Meaning this was an issue that for Israel was systemic. It was normative amongst the people of Israel that they were starting to keep a little bit. And if you remember their circumstance, it makes sense. It seems justifiable, right? Because what happened to the nation? They were taken into captivity in Babylon. They were abused there for a long time. They were sent back to a land that was utterly destroyed with some help to rebuild. So I think in their minds, they're thinking, God, can't we, can we get a break? Can, can we trust you less by keeping more? And, and that's, that's the, do you understand the heart here? Man, God, things have been a mess. We've been through hell on earth. Can we get a break? And God's response in this text is, trust me, trust me, and watch what happens. Okay, so there's, in the rebuke, if you're reading it properly, and it's true throughout this book, at the end of these texts, there should be a blazing hope that there is a God who saves, a God who is merciful, so we can say, it is, it's good. If God wants that, and it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to do it anyhow, because I trust him. Okay, just let that settle in. 
Why is, why is it so serious? At, at one level, it's an offense to God himself to assume that he won't meet your needs when he has promised that in the path of obedience in this setting, in this topic, he would worship of God. Secondly, it's serious because the gifts that were collected for the, were, the, were for the care of the poor, widows, and unfortunate. And to neglect that with God is to be cursed with a curse. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, talking about the tithe. It says, at the end of every three years, bring all your tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. Now listen to this. There's a, so what that means is there was a storehouse where the people of God that populated the land did their planting, they did their harvesting, and they took 10% of it as first fruits, and they put it in this larger structure in, somewhere in the city. Why was it there? Listen to this. Bring all the tithes of that year's produce, store it in your towns so that the Levites, that is the priestly or pastoral class who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat. Okay, I didn't say that. Okay, there is a God-given obligation in this text that goes far beyond me and mine and talks to them and theirs. To me, it's crystal clear. Do it, Jesus. Do it, God says, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Can I read for you a text that I find shocking? It's a text that describes the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one that I am fairly certain many of you have never contemplated in this regard. My heart said, wow, when I read this. This was the iniquity of Sodom. This. Now listen. Pride. Which I believe led to all the other issues. We can do what we want. On our terms, without consequence. Here's what God says. This was the sin of Sodom. Fullness of bread, abundance and idleness in her and in her offspring. She did not strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Full stop. I'm going to guarantee you something. I'm going to guarantee you that you probably have never thought about the sins of Sodom as God saw them. I was troubled when I read that. James 1.27 says this, true religion, meaning worship that God accepts. The word is liturgia. Do the ma- it's simple. It's liturgy. It's how we worship. It's the, it's the methodology. It's the normative practices. James 1.27, James heard this from his brother Jesus. True religion is to care for orphans and widows in their affliction. Widows and orphans 
are a category. It's not a limit to your concern for people. It is a category for people who struggle and are hurting. To care for them is true religion. It's true practical theology. So my question is this. Do I even care about that? Does the principle even hang out there as something that should be discussed? Or should we simply not acquiesce to that truth and say that is true? It is clear throughout the Old and New Testament. Matthew 25 goes deeper. Jesus says that the judge one day on the throne will say to those that did not care for the poor, inasmuch as you did not do it to them, you failed to do it to me. Let it settle in. Okay? I, that's why I'm reading this to you. Okay? If you want the notes, you can come up and steal them after the service. Okay? I'll probably just give them to you because you asked for them. <laughs> like a lawnmower. Jonathan Edwards, in his treatise on the obligation of Christians to perform the duty of charity to the poor. This is written in the 1600s. 1600s. Okay, folks, can I, can I just be honest with you? This was not a pleasant place to live in the 1600s. That's why you had revivals called the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. Because there was a horror in this land. If you are familiar with the history, there was deep brokenness at every level in this country that desperately needed a revival. Do your reading. Study the history. I'm not saying there weren't good people forming things. There were. But they were imperfect people. And we need to learn to be honest with the history so that we don't sound to our kids tone deaf and ignorant of the truths that we really should know and that I sadly never learned in a Christian school. Edward says this, the Christian duty of charity to the poor. He said, I know of scarce any duty which is so insisted upon, so pressed and urged upon us, both in the Old and New Testament, as the duty of charity to the poor. So what is, what is he saying? He's saying you cannot study the broad teaching of Scripture, a book like Malachi, without realizing that God has a mandate for his people, whether it was Israel, national in the Old Testament, or the church in the New Testament. God has a mandate for the church that we are obligated, we have a God-given duty to care for those in need. Now, I'm going to come to this at the end because... That becomes a little overwhelming. But here's my fear in my discussion with my friend the other night. It seemed that we couldn't agree on the basic principle because he was distracted by the political landscape, by the voices. We must first agree on the biblical principle, as Edwards clearly states. And if you want to challenge your heart, like if you say, you know what, Pastor Tim, I don't know if I agree with what you said today. You kind of ticked me off a little bit, irritating. Go read that sermon. The Christian duty of charity to the poor in your country, historically. Go read it. 
and look at the numerous passages that he stacks up line upon line upon line so that we begin to feel the weight so that he at the end of the day says there is no greater Christian duty, no greater expression on the outside of what we are called to be on the inside than our care for the less fortunate. I'm going to tell you, I did not grow up in a church where I think I ever heard this topic. Now, I'm going to tell you this, too. My pastor, who I spent a lot of time with, he drove me to college three times to South Carolina, never spoke about this topic in, in a strong way that I can recall. Okay? And I'm just, my, that's my recollection. Okay? I think because of other concerns that come up when you bring this up. But don't let all the concerns that are come up, coming up in your mind right now annihilate the baseline of truth. He, that pastor, Dr. E. Robert Jordan, was one of the most generous people in his daily life that I ever met. So I'll tell you, I never heard it much from the pulpit that I can recall, but man, did I see it in his life. I, his son is one of my dear friends, Ted Jordan. That man died with nothing. He lived in a one-room apartment with his wife, above the print shop of our home church. After 35 years of faithful service to God, and it's all he wanted. So please, as I say it, I, I have an objection to the fact that in the Christian schools, plural, three of them that I went to, scant, scant coverage on this topic. But I was blessed in my growing up to be around people who were fully embedded on this topic. There is a Christian duty to aid those who struggle and then move towards what it looks like in the practical and political arena. And understand how I say this because this has been Tim Hopps' excuse for years in terms of my understanding. Just because politicians have messed this up and I will say tragically and miserably in my estimation it does not give me the right to oppose the principle that God clearly establishes. So if your desire is to be a better conservative Republican or Democrat, may God help you as you look at his truth. Because if you have commitments outside of God first, you will never be where God wants you to be on a topic that he takes dead seriously. Our aim should be to be good, faithful, biblical Christians. Now, God in his mercy says to Israel, after all that, he says, verse 10, bring the full tithe, all of it. Bring the obligation. Bring what I've asked you to bring into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Notice, not to the temple, but to the storehouse, which existed for the benefit of the unfortunate. Okay, so there's precedent for caring for those that have less. Clearly, you... I'll leave you with the text. Let it analyze your heart. God says to his people this, and it's fascinating. He says, put me to the test. 
and see if I am faithful. Bring the full tithe, verse 10 says, into the storehouse so that there will be an abundance of food in my house. That's the implication. And thereby, by obeying me, put me to the test. See if I'm true. See if I'm faithful. See if I keep my word. And I will pour down for you a blessing until there is no more room or need. Isn't that beautiful? Wow. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever feel like you have enough? Don't answer that. I'm still getting over the personal conviction of thinking about the question, okay? Till there is no more need, enough food in my house to meet the needs of my people. Now, I'm going to say something that hopefully you understand. In context, that promise is to a nation. Okay, so to take that promise that is national and make it purely personal is to in some way distort this text. Okay? If you make this a the more I give the wealthier I will be, you have terrorized this text to the point that it is unrecognizable. All right, now I'm going to upset someone else. Give so you can prosper. Mm. When you make giving to God the means by which you meet your selfish needs... You have perverted this text by making yourself the point of giving and not God. I'm going to tell you something. That is pure idolatry. Because I have taken the dollar bill and put it on the shelf and I have thrust God aside. And God now is my servant to get me to what I really want and need. Okay, please do not Say, oh, I'm thinking of someone that's like that. Look in the stinking mirror. Okay? Look in the mirror. The reason this topic comes up so frequently in Scripture is what Jesus said that I mentioned at the beginning. Where your treasure is, your heart is. That's who you really are. That's what you really care about. So in a land of opportunity, which I believe we are overwhelmingly blessed. I would not want to live anywhere else. I thank God for my country that I am blessed to live in. Try to do my, my rightful responsibilities by that. I, I'm an American and I'm not, I am not ashamed of it. I have my eyes open as well. The segment of the church in America which draws the largest crowds Promises you your best life now. Prosperity now. The message is popular because it appeals to my lowest and basest instincts. To want more for myself now. And it is to utterly distort the biblical truth and ultimately it abuses the people of God, particularly 
the poor. own lives. And sometimes, folks, I'm sorry, but we need to call it out because it distorts the true gospel and it makes money the highest achievement of life rather than a life that is transformed by the grace and power of God. I think a better interpretation of this text is not the more you give, the more you get. It's you can't outgive God. He will increase your opportunity. This is my personal conviction on this. I talked to Doug yesterday for a little while. I said, Doug, what, how do you see this? Well, I said, I, I, I think the text promises an increased capacity to do the things that God has called us to do. That he pours out an abundance to those that he has proven able to trust so that we can do more. Deuteronomy 15.10, a verse that talks about tithing, giving, says this, give to the poor, to the sojourner, to the Levite freely, not grudging, but with an open hand. You know what an open hand is? Take, take what you need. And you may be the kind of person that says, I'm going to close my eyes. You take what you need because I can barely do it. But I know it's what God wants. Okay, sometimes that's where we are. Give to him freely, not grudging, with an open hand. For this the Lord God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. But I think 2 Corinthians 9 nails the text. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, meaning you'll have enough, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely and given to the poor it's a quote from psalm 118 he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for your richness no god will multiply and supply your seed for sowing an increase in the harvest of your righteousness which in context is clearly you're giving to the poor it's fascinating You will be, I believe, if you are generous with God, enriched in every way to minister to the people of God and the needy around you. And verses 11 and 12 are amazing. God says, this is the promise. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And I love this last verse. I love it. Then all nations will call you blessed. You know what that's a quote of? I hope you know. Genesis 12. When God calls a man named Abraham with a sordid history, who in the cancel culture would be discounted, but in a grace culture is exalted. God says, Abraham, in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. They will see that you bear the mark of my blessing. And God says to his people, when you trust me with your resources, the world around you will see me at work in your life. So why give generously? These are just my three applications. Why give generously? And and I'm going to tell you, I think the very simple reason is it breaks the bondage of materialism. 
it breaks the stronghold of, I need a little more. No, what I should be saying is I need to give a little more and trust God. So in 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, warn those who are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. Money's powerful. Money is real powerful. Money can distort you in a way that you cannot imagine. So God covers it with warning labels. And he covers it with a pattern that aims to break the bondage that materialism may lay hold upon you. So these are my simple thoughts on this text in terms of application. Establish patterns of generosity early. Early. I, I had the blessing, I've shared this story, but it, this is my story. My first job I got when I was 13. I came home from work with my first paycheck. Dollar bills. Green stuff. <laughs> it was affecting me. And my mom noticed. <laughs> she said, uh, okay, what'd you earn? Put it on the table. I put it on the table thinking she was going to count it and rejoice with me. She said, okay. I earned $10 that day. I was making $1.75 an hour. She said, uh, one goes to God. One goes to you. And the rest you can save. Is that why my dad told me when I came home from my first soccer practice that he got me a job? And I had to quit soccer and work. That's the way I was raised. I'm going to tell you something. I watched my parents in struggle because most people think my parents were where they are now their whole life. Okay? My parents built the house they live in when I left town at 30 years old. Okay? I had the benefit of watching people give selflessly for the benefit of others. And I had a mom who talked to me about what they did. I'm gonna, I won't ask you to raise hands. But if I said to you, how many of you as parents have ever sat down with your kids and explained to them what you do financially? There can only be two reasons why you haven't. One is you would be ashamed. And two is you just never thought of it. <laughs> I'm telling you, you ought to think about it. Truth is to be passed from generation to generation. And the blessing of generosity is withhold from young peop- withheld from young people who are never taught. And they hear tithing and they, they I'm telling you, I have watched people ask me, Pastor, do you believe in tithing? My response is always this, let's see what the Bible says, because what I think about it doesn't matter and shouldn't change your heart at all. I open up verses and watch people like the look of horror. The calculator starts running internally. (laughs) And I say, look, I've had the same feelings. I could be driving new cars my whole life if I didn't give to God. True. True. I only talk about what I do because I'm standing in front of you. You have the right to know that I'm living what I preach. Okay, so you can go talk to the people that count offerings. I don't care. I don't want you to do that, okay, because it's none of your business. Okay. <laughs> However, 
If you had a question, you'd say, you know what? Not sure he's true. I would tell you, go check. I would honestly tell you, I would not care what you know. So parents, do your part. Establish the pattern early because the percentage of giving decreases dramatically with the increase of income. That is a sad fact from the IRS. The more people make, the less they give. Okay, and sadly in our country, I'm going to say this because it's what's true. The more liberal people are in their leaning and perspective, the less they give, but the more they talk about it. I find that really frustrating. Did I just? Okay. That was a rabbit trail, Laura. Number two. When you consider helping people, do not look at the large picture of your world. God did not call you to run America. Okay? He called you to deal with your slice of the pie. Your portion of turf. And there are people, I I can look at people in this church right now. I'm not going to do it to not embarrass them. But I know people in this church who regularly alter their personal schedule and their personal resources to be sure that the needs of others are met. If you give generously, you need those people around you because the question you're asking, is it worth it? The first question you should ask is, is it the right thing to do? And then just do it. And let the results in God's hands. Trust me in this, God says. Trust me. Put me to the test. This is the only place in the Bible where God says to people, okay, you doubt me? Practice what I'm saying. Do it for six months. And see if God is a liar. Or if God is faithful and true. Don't look at the whole context in which you live. Don't look at the whole world in which you live. Ask God, who is the one person that I can impact? On any given Sunday in this church, by representation, we could touch the lives of 100 plus people on a regular basis without the help of the government. Because we care. Stop complaining about all the the horrific things and and the bad management because that for many of us, becomes an excuse for doing nothing, which is disobedience to God. Okay? Am I clear on that? When I, when I wiggle so much because of how bad things have been or how poorly things have been managed and then do nothing in my personal life, I am nothing but a hypocrite. Acting like God matters when he doesn't because it doesn't show up in my checkbook or my credit card. There are people that I care about. I'm going to tell you something. It would revolutionize our town if 100 people had need met, needs met by people in this church. And I know that's not 100% pot. I, I get it. I get it. But what a difference it would make if we didn't despise the small things. Because here's what some of you are thinking right now. Pastor, if you knew my financial picture, you would know what a burden this would be to do what you're saying. Right? There was a widow with two mites who gave what she could and was honored by God. I don't care what you have. I don't care how much or how little. God cares about our hearts. And he cares about us starting where we are 
though it's little, not despising the small steps of obedience or the small gift, but trusting God to do what he said he would do, and that is that he would multiply it a hundredfold beyond your wildest dreams. The last thing I say is simply this. Nothing motivates the duty of charity like the cross of Christ when it is rightly understood. Here's the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, you Christians know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, had all of heaven, yet for our benefit he became poor so that by his poverty we might be enriched. Through the gospel of Christ. The gospel rightly understood and appreciated ignites Christian charity like nothing else. The stats at the beginning of this sermon about what the Bible-believing people tend to give being upwards of double many places in this country should be true because God is there. God has been made known. There are, if there's more people in a context that trust God, then that context should be more charitable. So we have a challenge. We live in one of those diabolical states that fails to be generous by upwards of half while our income level is much higher. Let's start a change here. Not by an election, but by letting God challenge and confront my heart. Ever says, consider how much God has done for us. When we were undeserving and unworthy, Christ loved and pitied us in our poorest state morally. He laid out himself to help, to meet our need, and shed his own blood for us without grudging. We were rebels, yet he moved our way. He did not think it too much to deny himself and endure such a great cost for our benefit. Considering this, What a poor response it will be that those of us who share in such benefits cannot give something for relief of the poor neighbor without grudging. But it tends to grieve us to, to depart from a small sum to help a brother, a sister, or a sojourner. When Christ did not grudge to shed his own blood for us, We live because of supreme kindness, but are often stingy and unkind. And I see at that point, he's just like, what? God help us. Nothing ignites charity. Nothing will change my heart from being stingy and grudging towards needy people because I'm wondering, are they in that situation because they made a bad decision? Aren't you grateful Jesus didn't say, hey, why are you in your position? What did you do wrong? No, he loved us and gave himself for us. Knowing everything I would do wrong, he did that. And nothing like that truth will loosen my grip on my wallet, my checkbook, my credit card, and make me generous for the glory of God. May God help us to not rob him, but to be generous and to expect that as we're generous, God will open up the windows of heaven and meet all the needs in the context of our church family, in the context of our community, and may that become something that starts something special in the realm that we can control. Okay? Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. 
how resistant we tend to be to clear truth. God, may we agree together that we as individual Christians have an obligation to do good, to show charity to the poor. And may we understand that that truth is the essence of who we are. Because though you were poor, you gave up yourself so that we could become rich. And help us, God, to do the same. Motivated by truth that has changed our lives and our destiny. And has, in the future, enriched us beyond all that we could ask or imagine. Father, bless as we sing our closing song. Let it cement in our hearts truth for the glory and exaltation of Jesus. I want you to stand with us as we sing our closing song. Jesus, all the 
of Jesus, the cross as the final word, the cross as the final word. Now may that cross speak powerfully into each and every one of our hearts. If there are struggles with you, Lord, over the importance of giving, over the place of our wallet, over you, we ask that this cross would speak to that, that the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf would become more real in our hearts as we surrender more of our hearts and lives to him. In Jesus' name, I pray these things and for his glory. Amen.